I'll be reading this morning from Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah 5. Now there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore let us get grain that we may eat and live. And there were others who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on the fields and our vineyards. And now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters are forced into bondage. And we are helpless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. Then I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. And I consulted with myself and contended with the nobles and the rulers and said to them, You are exacting usury, each from his brother. Therefore I held a great assembly against them. And I said to them, We, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now would you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? Then they were silent and could not find a word to say. Again, I said, the thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? And likewise, I, my brothers, and my servants are lending them money and grain. Please let us leave off this usury. Please give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses, also the hundredth part of the money and of the grain the new wine and the oil that you were exacting from them. Then they said, We will give it back, and will require nothing from them, and will do exactly as you say. So I called the priest and took an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. I also shook out the front of my garment and said, Thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all of the assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. I'll pray. God, I thank you again for um, speaking to us, drawing us together to yourself, and being so gracious, God, to lead us to the truth that we might walk with you and know you and worship you in spirit and truth. And our eyes are on you, God, again, because we need you. We want to hear from you, to be led of you. And I pray that your word, God, would minister to us as we need. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, as we're going through Nehemiah, I noted last week, last Sunday, that chapters 4, 5, and 6 deal with conflict. Conflict external and conflict internal. Conflict from without and conflict from within. And so last week it was the enemies outside the walls that were um, ridiculing them and then threatening to come against them with armed resistance. And now in chapter 5, it's problems from within. And they are viewed by Nehemiah as being serious enough that they have to deal with this in the midst of the construction. They don't stop. It appears they don't stop the building of the wall, but in the midst of it, while it's going on, they have to address this because it's so serious. And then in chapter 6, there'll be more um, opposition and conflict from the enemies outside the city. 
So truly, this is a difficult time. This is a family matter. This is where, where the people of Israel, the people of Jerusalem are not doing well. So this is one of those times when you would not air your dirty laundry, but God puts it in the Bible so we can see that when our families struggle and our churches struggle, our Christian communities struggle, it's nothing new. That the people of God often have internal problems. And this is a great chapter to look at on, on how to deal with those things when they come up. This particular issue centers around money and that some people were being exploited. Those that didn't have money were being exploited by those that did. That, too, is not unusual. We know that many times when there are problems within uh, a Christian community, a church, or ministry, it often, not always, but often has something to do with money. In Acts, the first time there's a problem in the church, it was when Ananias and Sapphira lied about the price of the land that they had sold, and they get struck down. Money was the issue. And then in chapter 6, the next time there's a problem, it's because the Hellenistic Jews were being overlooked in the distribution of the food. And again, money and food and basic subsistence was, was the issue at hand. And so this is something that we are always going to deal with. As one person said, conflict is a result of the fall. And because we are living under the curse of the fall, we can expect that there's going to be conflict. It, it is discouraging, it can be disheartening, it can be so significant in the discouragement of it that we just throw in the towel and God's work ceases. That's why Nehemiah has to deal with this. He knows it is significant. The impact it can have in stopping the work of God has to be addressed so that God's work is not hindered. And so as we get into this passage, it's pretty clear, it's not very complicated at all, there are three complaints that come up, verse 2 and verse 3 and verse 4. Three times it says, those who said, there were others who said, there were those who said. So there are three different groups of people and three different complaints that are being brought up. The first complaint in verse 2, there wasn't enough food. We, our sons and daughters, are many, therefore let us get grain that we may eat and live. There's a famine going on, there are people that weren't eating. In verse 3, there's no money to buy the food. And there were others who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. And then in verse 3, there doesn't seem to be any hope. There doesn't seem to be any possible relief because of the oppression that's taking place. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. And now our flesh is the same as our brothers, and yet we're having to sell ourselves into bondage to our brothers. That's where it's really getting bad. One person said, the ultimate theft is the theft of a person's freedom. And that when you think about the Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not steal, the greatest thing you could steal from a person is their liberty and their freedom. And so here they're violating the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal, and they are robbing individuals of their personal freedom by making them slaves. This is a huge deal, and it's no surprise that that Nehemiah here is so upset. Exodus twenty-two twenty-five. it says, If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you are not to act as creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. I don't know how God could have said that any more clearly. When you're dealing with your fellow man, with, the, it, with, with Jews dealing with Jews, they were not to charge interest. In Deuteronomy 23, 19, same thing. You shall not charge interest to your countrymen. Interest on money, food, or anything 
that may be loaned at interest. Don't do it. So God couldn't have been clear on this. And they knew they were in violation of God's word. In Leviticus, it talks about making your countrymen slaves. If a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to you that he sells himself to you, you shall not subject him to a slave service. He shall be with you as a hired man or as an employee, as, as if he were a sojourner. And, you shall, and he shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. So there's a time when his service comes to an end. These things were not happening. And so in verse 6, Nehemiah says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. He's angry because he knows what God's word says and they are just ignoring it. He's angry because of the oppression that's taking place to these people. He cares. He's compassionate for the people and he is committed to God's word. In verse 7, so I consulted with myself. <laughs> I love that. I consulted with myself. And I, I, there's no doubt Nehemiah probably talked with other people. But I wonder if what he's saying here, when you're this fired up and this mad, and it is a righteous anger, you need to make sure it's a righteous anger. And that righteous anger doesn't become a sinful anger. And so he sits down, he thinks, he prays, he considers what his response should be. And so he's, he's acting reasonably. He's not acting out of control. He's not going to just lash out in his anger. I appreciate that a lot because when we're fired up, we can say and do a lot of things that we later regret. I can't think of a single time that I have lashed out in anger that I didn't later regret it. And I don't see him lashing out in anger. He's mad, but he is not out of control. He sits down, he consults with himself, and then he contends with the nobles. So he wasn't just, just saying, can we just, ha just have a cup of coffee together? He contends with the nobles. They needed to be contended with. He's ready to go in and fight these guys, but he's not out of control. He's reasonable, and he has sought the Lord, I believe, and is under the Spirit's control as he talks to these guys. He first goes to them privately, it would seem. They're the problem, the people with the money. He goes to them and, and contends with the nobles and the rulers. And said to them, not to the whole congregation yet, but to them, you are exacting usury. Usury is simply interest. Sometimes I've always, for many times I've thought for a long time, usury is excessive interest. It can be, and we use the word that way. I got out Webster's Dictionary and looked up usury. There are three definitions. The first two definitions just simply say interest. It's the third definition that says excessive interest. And that's exactly the point that Moses was making in both Exodus and Deuteronomy where he said, no interest per, at all, period, no interest. And so this isn't that it's excessive, it's that it's happening. That the Jewish people were not to charge interest to other Jewish people. Never to happen, and they were doing it. You are exacting usury, each from his brother. And so apparently there's no response. Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. I don't know for sure there was no response, but it appears to be that's the case because it's after the great assembly that these nobles and these rulers, they, they, they change their behavior. So he holds a great assembly against them. And I said to them, we, using his own personal example, we, according to our ability, 
have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now you would even sell your brothers. So we didn't know this, but apparently before Nehemiah ever left Persia and came to Israel, he used his own money to purchase the release of Jewish men and women that were living in captivity so they could come to Israel if they chose to. And now he's saying, these same people you're making slaves out of again. So it was just totally inconsistent with with even Nehemiah's own example. And they didn't have a word to say, it says at the end of verse 8. Well, that's a good thing. There's no defense. Seriously, it's a good thing. There's nothing they can say to defend themselves, and they know it. They are simply dead wrong in what they're doing. So they're silent. That's good. Again, I said, verse 9, The thing which you are doing is not good. I often see, you know, in our our rationalistic society, relativistic society, where everything is relative, one of the things, and and I've preached about this before, when we look at Matthew 18 and what it means to be childlike, one of the characteristics of childlikeness is they are very quick to determine what is good and what is bad. Very simple, very black and white. God is black and white, so it shouldn't surprise us that children will be black and white. One of the ways that we know that we're moving away from childlikeness is when we don't say any longer, it isn't good. But rather we ask the question, what's wrong with it? And I know my heart is moving away from a child's heart when I begin rationalizing things in my mind and my heart and saying, What's so bad about it? What's wrong with it? Rather than, as Nehemiah is doing, and just simply saying, it isn't good. Because we can all debate about how bad it is, but there's no debate that it isn't good. And that's where he comes down. This thing is not good for several reasons. One, as we've seen, it's against God's word. End of discussion. God could not have spoken more plainly about this. How can you justify it? They can't. That's why they're quiet. Another reason is because they are not fearing God. If you can so so cavalier reject God's word, ignore God's word, obviously you have no fear of God. That's a big deal. And then he says, to say nothing about our enemies. This causes us to bear the reproach of our enemies. We lose our testimony. How can you have any testimony of God and His love and His grace when you're treating people this way? And so we incur the reproach of the nations, our enemies. And then he says, And likewise, I, my brothers and my servants, are lending them money and grain. Now some of the commentators say, well, he's admitting he was partly at fault with this. Others would say, no, he's just using that corporate um, I where he's just including himself in the sin of the people. I think there's a third example or a third way of, of looking at this, and he's saying, I and my servants have been lending money, but there's no mention of lending money with interest. And so I think that he is, is, going to use, is using himself as an example here saying, we're lending money but we're not charging a dime in interest, which was permissible. I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Please 
let us leave off this usury. And that's where I think he's saying, us speaking corporately, the interest has got to stop. And then his plan of action, please give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses, and all the interest that you've collected, also the hundredth part of the money. A hundredth part is 1% per money, per, per month, which meant 12% annual interest rate that they were charging these people. Give it all back. Verse 12, and then they said, we will give it back. Well, that's a miracle. And we will require nothing from them. This is God at work. And we will do exactly as you say. But words are easy. So I called the priest and took an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. And then just to put the exclamation point on it, he stands in front of him and he just starts shaking the front of his robe and he says, thus will God shake you out of your house and out of all your possessions. You're going to lose everything if you don't do what you've promised to do. That had to motivate him. And all the assembly, they like that. Amen. <laughs> yeah, it's easy to say amen when it's the other guys that are going to get shooken out. Then the people did according to the promise. Praise God. The last part of the chapter here is Nehemiah's own personal example. And I think he includes this not to boast, but maybe just to tell us, show us that he had the moral integrity to insist that this take place. Very hard to, to preach on righteousness when you're not living righteously. It's very hard to hold people accountable for certain behavior if you're guilty of the same behavior that you're wanting to hold them accountable to. And Nehemiah was blameless. So some of the illustrations of his blamelessness, moreover, from the day that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year to the 32nd year, of King Artaxerxes for 12 years, in case you can't do the math, neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. So the governor, the king, a king allowed all these governors to have a certain amount of allowance. Nehemiah never took it. He didn't need it, and he didn't take it. Just refused to. Nobody else did that. Verse 15, but the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants dominated the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. Was he exhorting these noblemen toward? The fear of God. It's hard to exhort others to fearing God if you don't fear God yourself. And so he's showing there's no hypocrisy here, but only integrity. Out of the fear of God, he refuses to exploit people on the basis of his position. And I also, moreover, verse 16, I also applied myself to the work on this wall. So here you've got the top man in the country who is getting his hands dirty. He's picking up rocks. He's helping to build this rock, this wall. And even his servants, he required his servants to work on the wall. Verse 17, moreover, they were at my table, in case you think this was easy for him to do, to, to carry his own weight, to work on the wall, to not charge anybody anything, to not take the governor's allowance. It wasn't easy. He was feeding 150 people every day out of his own pocket. 
150 Jews and officials besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now that which was prepared for each day at his personal expense was one ox and six choice sheep. Also birds were prepared for me. And once in 10 days, all sorts of wine were furnished in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the governor's food allowance because the servitude was heavy on this people. So out of compassion. Two things that motivated him, fear of God and, the, and compassion for the people of God. And then his private, personal prayer, remember me, O God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. So he didn't write these things. God hasn't revealed these things to us so that Nehemiah could defend himself, but that we could see he's operating from personal integrity. And he's not looking for any reward, any applause. He's not looking for any recognition except from God. God, you know. And I look to you to take care of me, to bless me, to reward me as you would be pleased. And that's only what he was looking to. He's not looking to anybody else to pat him on the back or tell him what a good boy he was. So what was his response again in review? He was very angry. He consulted with himself. He contended with the nobles and rulers. He held a great assembly against them. He made his case and he made a personal challenge against them. He says, we've redeemed our brethren. You are selling them. You are not doing what is good. You are not fearing God. Consider the reproach of our enemies. Stop charging interest. Give everything back. Make complete restoration. And the response was repentance and a commitment to do what was right. So he'd made an oath, had them take an oath in order to hold them accountable, and gave them a severe warning, and they were all in agreement to do these things, and they did as they would, said they would do. So there are some things, some principles, and some lessons that we can take from this passage of Scripture. Conflict within, when the family of believers, when the body of Christ or our own biological families are having conflict, it is so serious. It restrains, that internal conflict restrains victory. It's serious because it has such potential for stopping what God wants to do in our lives. It can't be ignored. It needs to be de dealt with. It also brings reproach upon God. When God's people can't get along, it brings such great reproach against God. You've heard the stories, I've heard stories of different times when church congregational meetings have actually broke, have broken out in literal fights, and the police have been called to break up congregational business meetings. What a shame. But again, money is usually the cause. It's a business meeting, they're in disagreement, and people actually come to blows, and the cops have to be called. What a reproach upon the name of God. The reason for the conflict within is often simply pride, no fear of God, and no compassion for our fellow man. Pride, a lack of fear of God, and a lack of compassion. Doctrine is often not the cause of these things.
couple funny quotes I thought as I was preparing for this sermon. J. Vernon McGee, you got to love him. He says, if the devil can't destroy the church by persecution, he joins it. <laughs> he just joins it because he knows if I can't destroy the church from without, I'll just become part of the church from within. Another person said, in a church quarrel, Satan remains neutral, and he supplies ammunition to both sides. So some very basic principles here. Don't ignore the problems. We can't, when it comes to personal issues within the body of Christ, we can't just ignore it. Now, I said last week, if you were here, if you listened to the sermon, that there are some enemies that will always be enemies. It is impossible to reconcile with them. The New Testament recognizes that when it says, insofar as possible, be at peace with all men. It's not always possible. Sometimes some people are simply irreconcilable. You can give them all the apology you want, that they want, say it exactly the way they want it to say, and it does nothing to reconcile with them. That is a sad case, but it is reality. Jesus said, if you're sitting in church and you're about to take the Lord's Supper and you remember that your brother or you're offering or you're going to give offerings and you remember that your brother has something against you, then stop what you're doing and get right with your brother. Amen. We're not to ignore the problem. We're to deal with it honestly, quickly, humbly. But the assumption that Jesus is making, I believe, is not that your brother has simply taken offense because you believe something that he doesn't believe. There is nothing in Scripture that tells us to apologize for our convictions or to apologize for what we believe. We have to apologize because we have sinned against someone. But honestly held convictions are not cases to apologize for. That is not, you have not sinned against somebody for having sincerely held beliefs, and convictions. If they're taking offense, it is their choice. So I don't think Jesus is saying, if your brother is offended with you over some position that you sincerely and honestly hold, that you need to go and apologize to him. You've done nothing wrong. So it reminds me of those times I was in seminary and a couple guys came to me, different issues, and wanted me to apologize to them. Or wanted to apologize for me, <laughs> to me for one of them. You know, a guy, um, I had applied for a scholarship, and um, and and I got it. And it was not a huge scholarship for me. It might as well have been, you know, a million dollars. But I was I was awarded a thousand dollars. And I, out of my joy of my heart, I shared it with my seminary buddies, and and they all rejoiced with me. And then one of the guys. Knock, 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 comes to my door a while later, and, and he says, I need to ask for your forgiveness. And I, and I said, why? What, have you, what, what happened? And he goes, you know that scholarship you applied for? Yeah. And he goes, I've hated you ever since you told me that you got it. I've been so mad at you. I've just been stewing up, and I just, I just had to come to you and tell you and, and, and ask for your forgiveness. Well, number one, he should have never told me because I had no idea. 
So all he's done is he just backed up the big truck and just dumped it on me and walked away, and he's all clean and feeling fresh. And I'm left with his mess. You know, that didn't, he should have just gone to God because I had no idea. He should have just gone to God. And I said to him, did you apply for the scholarship? And he goes, no. And I'm going, why are you mad at me? Couldn't believe it. Another time, you know, I, I had all these inner city kids that I just, I just loved, and I spent every free minute with them. And I was in the projects, and they were on the seminary campus. And when they're on the campus, you know, I, I'd let them into my room. And, and, they, and so they got very familiar with the seminary, and they, they learned where everything was. And so they knew if I wasn't in my dorm, there was another dorm, and that had a cafeteria in it that I might be over there. So they would just go looking for me. Well, summer comes, and I'm gone. And they don't get that. And so they come looking for me. They think I'm still on campus. Well, I'm not. So they went to my dorm. They couldn't find me. So they went to the other dorm where the library, where the cafeteria was. And there's summer classes going on. And there's summer students in the dorms. And, and, and so some big seminary guy, he, he opens up the door to go, and, you know, and, and he's looking for me. And so all, all my kids go running into the building. And, and then these guys, now you've got a dozen or more seminary guys that are chasing all these boys through, this, through the whole building, three-story building plus a basement, and trying to get them out of the building. And apparently they did that all summer because my boys learned this is fun. <laughs> so they'd go over there and ring the doorbell. <laughs> Door would open up, and they'd all go running in, and they scattered through the whole building. I had no idea. I'm here. And I'm annoyed. So I get back to campus, and this guy comes knocking on my door, and he says, "Man, I just couldn't wait for you to get back." I go, "Really?" And he goes, "I'm so mad at you. I just could, I'm, I just could kill." I go, "What did I do?" And he goes, "You know your boys?" And I go, "Yeah." He says, "They've been coming into our dorm all summer long, running through the just, just hiding every place." And I go, "Did they break anything?" No. Did they steal anything? Not to my knowledge. And so I'm laughing, and I'm going, that sounds like they had a lot of fun. And, he go, and I go, you see, there, I've got nothing to apologize for. I didn't do it. There's nothing wrong. And, and they're mad over no reason. So I am sorry to say I did not apologize to either one of those guys. Maybe I'm being self-righteous. But I don't think Jesus is telling us you have to go and apologize every time somebody's got their nose bent out of shape. Sometimes they've done it themselves. If you ever look at my nose, it's quite crooked. It's very bent out of shape. I've broken it a number of times, but the worst time I ever broke it, I did it myself. I had allergies, and I just rubbed my nose so hard, I broke my own nose. And now I have a deviated septum, I don't breathe out of the right side of my nose. It's made my whole nose ugly. I did it myself. There's nobody I have to go to and say, you need to apologize. I did it myself. That's often the way it is with our problems. Don't ignore the problems, but don't make your problem somebody else. They did it. we got to be adults. Own up to it. We do this with our kids. Don't blame other people for what you are the cause of. Sometimes, though, many times there are issues that we just need to address. But that doesn't mean every issue needs to be addressed. Sometimes I need to take it to the Lord myself. It's okay to get angry, but don't sin. 
It is necessary, necessary to insist that Scripture be honored, that God be feared, and that good be done. If the church can't agree to this, then how are we the church? If in a family, I mean, I remember so many times I had this conversation with our kids. What we're about here is God's word being honored, God being feared, and the right thing being done. It's not complicated. So there shouldn't be any any dispute, and there wasn't on the part of these nobles, to their credit. They did a lot of stuff wrong, but to their credit, they did not argue when it came to to Nehemiah saying, Scripture's got to be honored, God needs to be feared, and good must be done. We must be self-controlled, reasonable, and uncompromising. Not emotional, not out of, out of, out of sorts, but self-controlled. And the Spirit of God gives self-control when we're dealing with these kinds of problems. First, go to the wrongdoer. Scripture is very clear on that. Go in private first. Make sure there's no misunderstanding. See if there is a desire to repent and to change. And then only as is necessary, go public. We must consider the testimony of Christ before unbelievers. Wasn't always good, but one thing, my mom, my dear mom, I tell you, she was so much of the time worried about what other people would think. And she was just drilled into us all the time. What are the neighbors going to think? What are the neighbors going to think? And you know, and I'm going, I don't think they, by this time they know what we're like, okay? There's nothing. I'll never forget the time my older brother, she had learned, my mom, that, that nothing got teenage boys under control better than a plastic baseball bat. Um, and, and I don't know why, just, just one time she cracked one of us between the shoulders with a plastic baseball bat. Man, that hurts. And, and we, and whoa, everything stops. So, hey, hey, man, whatever you want, Mom. And so my older brother one time, I don't remember what he had done, but she, she popped him with the plastic baseball bat, and he didn't have a shirt on, and he ran outside and threw himself down on the, on the driveway, spread eagle, my mother standing over him, beating him with the plastic baseball bat, and he's screaming so all the neighbors can come out, she's beating me again, she's beating me again. <laughs> She did not care what the neighbors thought at that moment, I can tell you. Those were the days. But in seriousness, we should consider the testimony of Christ before unbelievers. This is the big reason Paul says, and again, it deals with money. In 1 Corinthians, he says, how dare you sue one another? You, brother, goes to court against brother. And in this, you not only defraud one another, but you bear bad testimony of Christ. You do this before unbelievers. We need to set a personal example of what we want from others. Encourage proper restitution and encourage accountability and commitment. These are all just basic principles from this passage. What is the problem with charging interest? The problem wasn't loaning. The Bible doesn't say you can't loan. 
But the Bible says don't loan with interest to Jew to Jew. The New Testament doesn't deal with this subject as best I can tell. So what is the issue? What, what made interest so bad? Well, we know that it doesn't take a lot of interest when you're at a, living at a subsistence level. You can barely pay your bills as it is. And this is assuming that people have taken out a loan because they actually need help. It's not because they want the newest car. You know, but there's a literal need they can't do without, and they simply don't have the money, and so they go to somebody that has the money and say, can you help? That's okay. But once you tack interest onto it, if this person already is living such a meager lifestyle that they had to come and ask for money to begin with, once you tack interest on it, then you could just put them over the edge where they never, ever get away from that loan. And you've just made a slave out of them. And so it can become bondage. And that's the problem here. Again, a form of taking another man's freedom. And it is stealing. Where we put people into perpetual debt and perpetual bondage. This happens all over the world. Happens here too. I've noted it before. I mean, you, every, you know, probably every county in, in everywhere in the United States where there's a courthouse, there's a bail bondsman nearby, right? And those bail bondsmen have almost no regulations on them of how much money they can, interest they can charge on the loans that they give. And I've heard 20, 30, 40, 50% interest that these bail bondsmen are charging. It is obscene. Why do they do that? Perpetual debt, perpetual bondage. When you loan your money without interest, you are sharing in the other person's trial. Because you could be getting something for your money if you invested it anywhere else. But when you loan money to a brother or sister in Christ, it's not to be considered an investment on your money, a way to get more money. It ought to be considered simply as a way to help somebody else up. Like in... It's a wonderful life. You got two different key figures in that movie who loan money. George Bailey from the Savings and Loan and Mr. Potter, old evil Mr. Potter. They're both in the same business. But Mr. Potter was in the business of making money off of loaning money. And George Bailey was in the business of helping people get a leg up. And he says that in the movie. I just want to see people have a leg up. I want to see them succeed. And you're trying to crush the life out of them. See, that's the difference. There's nothing wrong with loaning money to other people. So long as our desire and our ambition is not to enrich ourselves, but to see them helped out. And once you put interest on it, then the motivation becomes questionable. By not putting interest on it, I participate in their suffering. By not putting interest on it, I'm free of all accusation, all suspicion of exploitation. And I am giving as God gives to me, freely. 
and I'm doing what I would want others to do for me. As with all truth, in one way or another, it is supposed to lead us back to Jesus. And as I looked at this passage with Nehemiah and, you know, some people being exploitive of other people in terms of money, I have to think, I don't think I've personally experienced that in my life as a Christian, one Christian exploiting another Christian with money. I'm sure it takes place, but it's not a common thing. So why is it here? What are we supposed to get from this? And how ultimately does this point back to Jesus? And I think it gets to the issue of why God has said no interest when it comes to Jew to Jew. And I think we could extend that to Christian to Christian. Jesus, and I put the emphasis here, gave himself. Gave himself. He gave us eternal life. It's not a loan. It's not an interest-bearing note. It does not bring us into perpetual bondage. Now, as soon as I say that, if you're like me, my thought goes, well, aren't we slaves of Christ? Doesn't Paul call himself a bondservant of Christ? Yes. But his servitude brings freedom. Doesn't take it away. Jesus came to set men free. He came to set the captive free. So even when we become the slaves of Christ, it is in order to bring us freedom. It seems to be an oxymoron, a contradiction, but it's not. The bondage that we have in serving Christ is one that brings freedom. Freedom from sin and death. Freedom to obey. It is a free gift, and it, does, it incurs perpetual gratitude. In Romans 1.14, Paul says, I am under obligation under obligation, well, that doesn't, then, well, that goes contrary to what I'm saying. I don't think so. He says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. And he, what he's getting at is to preach the gospel. Well, there's an obligation, perpetual bondage. No, the obligation is because of grace. He says in, chapter, in the same chapter, earlier in the chapter, through Christ, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for His name's sake. So the obligation that I'm under is in consequence to the grace that I've received. And exactly because the gift of life, the gift of forgiveness that we have in Christ is free, that I feel obligated all my life to live in gratitude, in humble adoration of Him, that I have received what I could never pay back. And He's not telling me to work for what I've received. He tells me to enter into the good works that He's already prepared for me. It is a free gift. All has been paid. All is freely given. And now there is an eternal sense of gratitude that should result in love and obedience. Those who have been blessed by God's grace are obligated because of God's grace to share with others, to give to others 
as we have been given to. Jesus came to set the captive free. Nehemiah was in the business of setting captives free. Jesus was, a man, was the man of righteousness, a man of integrity, and the same was true for Nehemiah. I think the lesson here is that when we're dealing with conflict within the body of Christ or within our families, believer to believer in particular, it is a very serious thing. And if the issue anyway surrounds or, or stems from that one person's liberty is being robbed. And to me, this becomes a test of a church that's truly functioning according to the Spirit of God. People ought to be, be being set free. Through faith in Christ that they're saved. And as they walk in their life, they're becoming more and more aware and experiencing of the grace of God to live free from the bondage of sin. It's not freedom from standards. It's not freedom from God's word. It's not freedom from the fear of God that he set us free from. But he set us free from the bondage of sin and death. And a church, the body of Christ, ought to be a place where people are experiencing that freedom. And if a church becomes a place where I don't even have the freedom to make my own decisions anymore without consulting with an elder, it's not a place of freedom. Or I can't follow my own conscience without having to check with somebody else first. It's not a place of freedom. But when I'm walking with Jesus, my conscience is free. And I am free by the Spirit of God to obey my conscience. It is government that moves toward totalitarianism, where you don't even have the ability, the freedom to think or to speak anymore. That is the way of the devil. It is the way of God to give us freedom. Not the freedom to do whatever we want, but the freedom from sin and death, the freedom to obey Him, the freedom of conscience. It's in these ways that God sets us and we, it's a good acid test, a litmus test for whether we are, are being influenced more by the devil and the world or Christ and his word. The measure of freedom, when it comes from freedom from sin and death, the freedom of conscience, the freedom to live in, a, in according to the dictates of God or moving away from that. One is clearly of the Lord and the other of the enemy. And Satan's goal is to take away all this freedom so that the work of God comes to an end. And I'm thankful that God has given the resources in Christ to deal with the conflicts that come up peacefully, according to his word, in the fear of God, clearly with commitment and resolution. I'll close us in prayer. God, I thank you for, again, your patience with us. Thank you, God, that you are the sufficient one. Through your word, through your spirit, God, that you work among us to know you and also to be at peace with one another. Conflicts arise. We live in a fallen world. But I do pray, God, that as they come, that we would listen to your spirit, that we would be counseled by you, and that we would strive, God, to maintain the unity that you've given us in Christ.
and that the unity that we've been given, God, would not be forfeited. Because we know the only possibility outside of Christ is bondage and death. And it's in Christ, God, that we have been set free. And I pray that we would walk in that liberty, not quench and grieve your spirit, that we be faithful and diligent to come to you and to preserve, to maintain the unity that you've given us. And I do thank you, Lord Jesus, for the freedom that we have in Christ from sin, the power of death, and the freedom to obey you. In Jesus' name.